Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Uh, If you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13. This morning we are uh, beginning our 40 days of prayer, and that does start today. So when you pick up your prayer journal on your way out, um, I'll show you what that looks like if you haven't picked one up yet uh, at the end. But um, you can pick one of those up that does, again, start today, and we'll go for the next 40 days. We'll be praying together. There have been a number of movements of God in that specific amount of days. Um, But, uh, you know, of course, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Uh, Jesus was tempted in the desert that long. Uh, But we don't want to make an idol out of the number of 40. That's not the point. Uh, But we simply need to remember that God moves when he moves and he acts when he acts. But it seems to be more so when his people are on their knees seeking him in prayer. And we have humbled ourselves and, in, um, and seek him. Uh, when it comes to prayer, that is, uh, simply put, an open heart before God. We open his word. We may read before we pray. We may journal our prayers. We may write those down. Uh, but it is simply an open heart before the Lord. I don't know if you care to watch the NFL anymore. I do some and was watching Monday night when... Um, DeMar, um, I forgot his last name, Hamlin, um, hit, uh, or he didn't hit, the guy hit him, um, if you want to get technical about it, uh, from an old football player, but uh, he got hit, and then when he got up after the tackle, he collapsed. If you saw that, I'm sure you've seen it on the news at least, um, where he just uh, collapsed on his back, and of course, we know now they had to resuscitate him twice, and uh, administer CPR and shocked his heart back. Um, and of course, now by the end of the week, he's uh, FaceTiming and uh, Zooming with his friends and his, his teammates, which is an amazing thing. But it was during that, during that game um, between the Bills and Bengals that I noticed quickly how, how soon the players gathered and started praying. Uh, they all got down on a knee, which is not uh, abnormal to see teams pray. I mean, when I played, we would always take a knee and pray the Lord's Prayer as if invoking the Lord's Prayer would somehow win a victory. Um, but it was a respectful thing to do. At least our coach led us that way. But I do know the coach of the Bills is a, seems to be a strong believer in, in Christ. But the point of that is the next day during ESPN's show called NFL Live, um, one of the commentators on ESPN, his name is Dan Orlovsky, And I don't know much about him, but he offered a a rather heartfelt prayer uh, on live national TV on a liberal channel. Um, And when when he started to pray, he had had a couple things to say, but it's almost like he was warning the producers of the show about what he was about to do. It's almost like it was unprompted, not scripted at all. Because this is what he said before he prayed. He said, maybe this is not the right thing to do, but it's just on my heart that I want to pray for DeMar Hamlin right now. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. And the two people with him 
one in particular uh, said, that's right, that's right. And so they all three bowed their head and closed their eyes as he began to pray for Damar. And when he goes on to pray for Damar, he expresses what prayer was or is, that we often turn to God in times of hardship, in times where we don't understand what's happening or tragedy. Um, and we just acknowledge that we may, no, we may never understand. In fact, he actually said that. We may never understand why. Um, but it was nice to see that uh, on, on a channel like ESPN, um, you know, that made fun of Tim Tebow for taking a knee and propped up others for taking a knee for other reasons. But prayer, prayer can be polarizing. Um, you saw that with Tim Tebow in his day, uh, what he was doing as he would kneel and give thanks to God for his success. But prayer is first and foremost admitting that we need help. And that's why you don't see it much. <clears throat> Nobody, especially in our culture, wants to admit they need help. We don't want to show any kind of weakness. <clears throat> but when you have a teammate just collapse for no explainable reason and his heart stops, you got nothing else. You got nothing else but to turn because you need help. And the things that we pray about, the things that you pray about, are the things that you trust God to handle. So thinking about that, what are you not praying about? Because if it's true that the things we pray about are the things that we trust God to handle, then the things that we don't pray about are things that we think we can handle on our own. But the last I checked... We are called to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ and that he is our ever-present help in times of trouble. The other side of prayer that we'll get to in the next 40 days is that following Jesus is not an invitation to a play date on the playground. It's a summons to the battlefield. We sang about that a few moments ago. I hit my knees. We go to our knees. We lift up our hands in battle. When I was a kid, there was a, uh, well, we would know it as Lifeway Christian Resources. It had another name back then, but it changed to Lifeway, and they became Lifeway Christian Stores. They've gone completely online now. But I remember, as a kid, we would go to those Lifeway stores, and they would have a kid section, and they would have Bible toys. And they're, they're a little bit different. Um, like you could buy a, a suit of armor, spiritual armor of God, right? You could, I was always wondering why they didn't sell stones and slingshots. You know, like, let's live out David and Goliath. You know, I got a big brother. Let's live it out, right? They never sold those, but they always had the plastic suit of armor, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the shoes, the sword, all the things, the shield. Uh, and and I, I never got that, but, you know, I always wanted it. You know, pretend armor is cool if you're a boy. Um, growing up and you know it lasted five seconds when your brother you know decided to whoop you anyway and that plastic didn't protect you well, what I'm getting at is when we follow Jesus it's an invitation not to a play date where we put on our pretend armor but rather we put on the real spiritual armor of God we have to come into prayer with that kind of mindset we trust God to handle the things of our life as we follow him and we also realize it's not just something that we do. It's not just a playground play date, but rather we are entering the battlefield when we hit our knees in prayer. That's the call for the next 40 days. And even the next 30 after that, there'll be another prayer challenge following. But what we want to do and what I'm, what I'm praying is that you will experience renewal. 
you'll get that sense of renewal and praying for renewal through the next 40 days in the journal and that your connection with the Lord and your relationship with him will grow deeper in his grace and mercy as you grow in faith. If we approach prayer like the national anthem before a ball game or a pledge of allegiance before our school day starts, it's just there to get the game started but has no connection really to what's happening on the field, we will totally miss out if we just treat prayer as a courtesy. We want to treat prayer for what it is. And let it not be said of us out of Mark chapter 7, verse 6, when Jesus told the Jews, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Friend, if you, are, if you sense at the beginning of this year that you are far from the Lord and you are ready to get back in touch with him and you are ready to draw close to him again, then this is for you the next 40 days. This is for you. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning, verse 53 and following. This specifically doesn't have to do with prayer, but rather it's the last verse that gets me to the point of prayer. This is a time where Jesus had gone back to Nazareth. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's done the proper things a rabbi would do. Very similar. He follows the same procedure. As the people listen to him read and teach, it draws out where their heart really is. Listen to what Matthew says. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. High and exalted set apart for glory. Father, the next 40 days are set aside for your church to focus our hearts on prayer, to seek you in prayer, that we would humble ourselves, seek your face. Father, it is my request that as you speak to your church that we will listen. Father, today, if there be an ounce of unbelief in our hearts, I pray it would be wiped out, filled up. Father, I pray as we humble, that you would humble us if we've grown so familiar with the thought of prayer that we've completely lost touch with you because we've quit practicing meaningful times with our Father. So, Lord, this morning our Bibles are open before us, your word. And I pray that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you read the four Gospels together, you'll find multiple times where Jesus is rejected, then accepted. There were some level, there's got to be some kind of level of personal pain for him through all of that 
But as captured in the Gospel of Luke, when he began preaching and confronting the people in their sin, in Luke chapter 4, verse 29, it says, They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. His teaching was confrontational. He didn't coddle them in their sin. He didn't give them warm fuzzies, but no, he, he laid it on pretty thick and heavy. And in fact, in Luke chapter 4, is Luke's perspective of this particular moment in Matthew chapter 13. And at the end of that story in Luke, you heard what I said. He, the word says they took him to the edge of a cliff so they could throw him off the cliff. And another point in Mark's gospel, when Jesus had been teaching His family was there listening, and his own family didn't understand what he was saying, looking at each other, and they say, this dude's out of his mind. He is absolutely out of his mind. Now, Matthew 13, Mark and Luke, they capture this story. It is in his hometown. It is in Nazareth. So we start our journey with this moment. And we understand as we start this that we want to avoid the sinful tragedy of unbelief. Your prayer life, our corporate prayer life, is a vital link to the health of this body of believers. If we are not praying together as individuals, if we are not seeking the Lord in prayer, we are guilty of the tragedy of unbelief. When you think about Jesus... Looking at Matthew 13, when you think about Jesus, like the people in Nazareth, are you only amazed? Because when you read that, at first, they're astonished. The word says they're astonished. As as Jesus came to Nazareth, he's coming to his hometown, and there he is rejected. Most estimates are that Nazareth has a population at this time of somewhere between 200 and 500 people. So think the size of Tavoli. Highest estimates were somewhere around 2,000. So think Taft. It reminds me of Garth Brooks' song, Nobody Gets Off in This Town. You ever heard that one? Nobody gets off in this town. I won't sing it for you. Trains don't even slow down. My high school sweethearts married and gone. They met on a bus to San Antonio. The Greyhound stops and somebody gets on, but nobody gets off in this town. That's, that's what Nazareth is. It's a nobody town. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, he gives us the eight parables captured. And then he turns to this moment at the end of chapter 13 where Jesus goes and he leaves the place where he'd been teaching and he travels to Nazareth. And what you'll see in the context of Matthew 13, I think, is that he is relating what he has been teaching in those parables in a different place to what he experiences in Nazareth. Matthew 13 contains the parable of the sower. It's at the, back at the very uh, beginning, I believe. And he goes into the, par- uh, the reason for the parables. The parable of the sower is explained there in verse 18. You've got the parable of the weeds. There's several others that he, he puts into that that Matthew captures. But what he finds here is in Nazareth, his own people are like the first ground. There's no life there whatsoever. They just don't. Believe, But they're astonished, it says, right? They're amazed. If you listen to his teaching, as Luke records it in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to bounce between Luke, Mark, and Matthew, but we're staying in Matthew. But if you go back to Luke's account, 
He reads from Isaiah. He reads it in the synagogue where it was supposed to be read, and there he fulfills one of the prophecies that was said about him. But they, in that moment, as they hear him read, and that this scripture is fulfilled in your presence this morning, they react with amazement. There at the end of verse 54, they were astonished. That's not unusual. They're literally struck with all. That's not unusual as Jesus worked a miracle or taught the crowds that they were astonished at this man's teaching and who he was. Even Nicodemus understood that with the signs that Jesus had been working, uh, that he must be from God. But what they begin to think about in the hometown of Jesus was, who is this guy? And there's a list of some rhetorical questions in 54 through 56. Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Where did that come from? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? That's a dig and really a slap in the face of his mother and his earthly father. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, you know, the four kids that were always causing trouble around town? Interestingly enough, there are James and Judas, also known as Jude. You have two authors of New Testament letters. And aren't his sisters here? Where did this man get all these things? So culturally speaking, there, there's not a whole lot of upward mobility. You know, like in our own country, you can be from nothing and not have much of an, of an upbringing and still make something of yourself. A kid could grow up with nothing and become a medical doctor if that kid has enough drive and maybe some outside push from a teacher or a coach or someone important in their life. But in this day and time, that, that really wasn't a thing. If you were a carpenter, you were a carpenter for life. You're not going to be much more than that. These questions are meant to be disparaging. This this man is really of, of little worth. How, how could he possibly know anything about what he's teaching or what he's saying? He's from Nazareth. His parents are nothing. The whole family is nothing. They'll never amount to anything. Whoa, whoa, were they wrong? What is the source of wisdom? It, it, it's either going to be from God or it's going to be from Satan. Who is he working for? Where, where's this coming from? There'll be another moment captured where they say, ah, he's working for the devil. That's where Jesus said a house can't be divided against himself, itself. So they're, they're not denying what Jesus was saying or doing. But if the wisdom and works don't come from God, then where are they coming from? They're pointing to Satan. Today we might see people say, oh, he's so smart, well-educated, very witty, quick on his feet. Many people today might even argue with some of the miraculous events of the scripture. Well, certainly they would. Even there's people in the liberal arms of, of the church. If you can even still be a part of the church and be liberal in your theology, I, I don't think that's possible. But it, they'll deny the miracles of Jesus. Thomas Jefferson did that in, in, in his gospel that he tried to put together. He cut out all the miraculous, even the resurrection. He cut all of that out for his own little reading enjoyment. You're left then with the teaching of Jesus. Well, we can applaud his teaching. 
If you just look at his teaching, it has, it's a very nice social gospel. It teaches us how to love one another. It teaches us how to treat one another. Be respectful. But is that why he came? That's not why he came. So I can agree with the teachings of Jesus and not be saved. That's the point here. That I can be amazed at his humility. Like I can be amazed at the humility of Gandhi or Mother Teresa and yet not be saved. I can be amazed at his miracles and not be saved. I can be amazed at all of those things and leave in unbelief. So by this time, in Matthew, there are numerous miracles that Jesus had performed. Mark had already recorded 10 in his gospel. Nazareth isn't denying any of that, but these events, his teaching and his works, they're not bringing those people to faith. It's as if they're saying, okay, this guy's claiming to be the Christ, the one we've known all of our lives, the one we saw grow up working as a carpenter or working for a carpenter. Are you kidding? They can't explain his miracles, but we know who he is. We know where he's from. He's a nothing and a nobody. Of that, we are certain. Daniel Aiken had that interpretation. I found that helpful. thought I'd share it with you. So they're amazed, but they're amazed into disbelief. They're not amazed into belief. They're amazed into disbelief, unbelief. And then Jesus breaks this out in verse 57, and that causes us to think, when you think about Jesus, are you offended? Verse 57 says, and they took offense at him. By reading from Isaiah, as captured in Luke 4, he has fulfilled that very specific prophecy about reading from that passage, knowing and knowing the claims that Jesus had made up to that point, in that moment, and throughout his ministry, the people are faced with a decision. And I always appreciated the way C.S. Lewis put it. He's like, you're gonna have to decide either Jesus is Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. The people of Nazareth chose Lunatic or liar, not Lord, at least not yet. People today, we might respond the same way. Paul said it, that the gospel, as we preach Christ crucified, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. Not everybody receives the gospel as good news. Some are offended by it. They don't like hearing about sin. I get it. I don't like hearing about it either. That's why as quickly as I can, when God brings it up, I say, whoop, let's get back to the cross and find forgiveness. What is interesting here, though, is Jesus' teaching and his miracles, it's not, a, it's not an automatic result that faith happens. Because you think that would be the case, but it's not. They actually see in Jesus and in his teaching here a scandal. That word, they took offense, offense the, the base word of that is scandalized or scandal. They felt as if they had been taken by a criminal. Luke chapter 4 gives a bit of a deeper encounter in this moment. As Jesus read and taught, he gave them this scenario as a reminder of God's past actions. And here's how this is scandalous to those in Nazareth. He says in Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 24 through 28, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, 
When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. Catch that? He wasn't sent to the Jewish people, the Jewish widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel a different time in the time of the prophet Elisha who followed Elijah. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, this is why they get incensed and and outraged. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, Luke writes. So the offense caused them to refuse to believe. The truth was rejected in that moment. What was the truth? That Jesus had come not just to save Jews, but to save Gentiles. Therefore, Jesus came to save sinners. Amazement in that moment in Matthew's gospel. Astonishment turned to skepticism, turned to opposition. It's so much deeper than just a personal offense. It's depths to the depths of the sin of apostasy is how deep that word runs. That's an abandoning of one's belief or even an outright rejection of the truth. Are we astonished? Are we only astonished or amazed at Jesus with no faith? Are we offended by him? And the last question is, when we think about Jesus, are you guilty of unbelief? Jesus left his hometown after this moment, and he doesn't go back in verse 58, and it says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The unbelief of the people halts the work of Jesus. Mark says that he healed a few, but then went on about his way, and actually it says that he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. So how could the all-powerful Son of God be bound or limited by unbelief of the people of Nazareth? It's as if he stopped dead in his tracks. Well, the point of that is that he could do the miracles. He could have. But he did not because he would not do the miracles in the face of unbelief. They rejected him. If they had just believed, if they had just trusted in that moment, no doubt he would have continued to work, much like the Roman soldier Jesus had encountered. He was amazed at that centurion's faith. It's such a simple faith. He said, and, and anyone in Israel have not found a faith like this man or the woman who just reached out and touched the hem of his robe, amazed at her, her faith, her simple faith. Or like even the widow who gave her widow's might all she had because she loved her Lord. Or the alabaster jar. Judas criticizes her. How could you be so wasteful? She's just anointing her Lord because she loves him so. Friends, unbelief limits the work that Jesus will do and he is always capable. He's never limited in any of his scope of power. But his will... That's a different story. We understand the work of Jesus, his teaching, his healing, his miracles. They're not magic tricks. Not what you see on TV and some of these big crusades where they're doing the hocus pocus stuff on the stage and pulling people out and paying them off. It's not on that mess. These were real events and true events where lives were radically changed and yet it wasn't enough. 
for Nazareth. The signs that Jesus worked were there to show that that redemptive power, how it operates, and how it's meant to draw people back for redemption. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 reminds us, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So over the next 40 days, as we go through prayer each time, whether you do it in the morning, midday, evening, whatever time you find going through the journal and reading through scripture, as we draw near to him, we do so with a full understanding that we believe that he exists and he has good things for his people, for his glory. But when we come to him in unbelief, it freezes the exercise of God's power, says Kent Hughes. Which then I draw the conclusion that a church that does not believe is a church that is robbed of its power. In fact, if we don't believe in the God we say we do, then we're not a church at all. We're a community organization for the betterment of our community. But listen, friends, we can plan, schedule, we can develop core values, program ourselves to death, meet in committees, <laughs> uh, observe the Lord's Supper. We can plan our worship services, have a great choir uh, with a so-so leader, a fantastic praise team with an awesome leader, administrate to our heart's content, plan, calendar, bring huge offerings, rebuild everything, withstand every storm, print bulletins full of announcements, lots of fun, lots of events. But if it's not led, first and foremost, by the Spirit of God, as his people seek him through prayer, we are not a church. We are a community organization. We must seek the one who is able to do far more beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or think for his glory and our good. There are a couple of reasons I'll share with you why we might end up in a place where prayer is not as important as it once was, where then the danger is what we find in verse 58 of people who are in unbelief. One of those reasons is because we get so familiar, we think we get so familiar with Jesus, therefore we are no longer moved by his power, his presence. We no longer seek his presence. Back in November, you heard our uh, executive director of the state convention come and, and share what his desire was, which was for churches to get in more into the presence of God through prayer. We're working our way there. But some of you are like me, and you were raised in church all your life. I mean, I guess technically, I was in church before my parents even knew I was around, at least for about six or seven, eight weeks, until they realized, oh, we got a little one coming. I've been there, been in church. I could probably count on my hands the number of Sundays that I've missed as a kid. So you've heard the stories time and time again. You know them well. You can probably quote John 3.16 so easy. And his word doesn't move you like it once did. There's an old proverb, an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Let that not be said of us where his miracles and his word have lost their luster, where his death on the cross no longer cuts you to the heart. The second thing here is the reason is that we've become so familiar with the gospel that we're blinded to the glory of its Savior. 
There's much pride in the man or a woman who says, I wish there was something more than the gospel. Great, another sermon on the gospel. We never move past the gospel. We only ever move deeper into the grace and mercy of the gospel. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you hear what's out there? The presence of God, God himself in prayer. So if we want to please God, if we want to know his pleasure and his power, then we believe that God is still in the business of changing lives. We believe that the gospel is the very power of God at work to change lives and that his will is best, which means that we trust him, not just for the next 40 days, but for the rest of our lives, that we trust in Jesus Christ and that we don't come to him on our terms, but rather we come to him on his terms because unbelief closes the door of of the transformational power of Jesus, but faith opens that door. You see, because divine ability has never been the problem. It's always been our unbelief. It was the same problem for Israel. They never got to go into the promised land under the leadership of Moses. Why? Because they had a chronic problem with a lack of faith. That lack of faith led them to turn to other gods, idols, that were all empty and powerless. Rather than living in that chronic lack of unbelief, we should respond in turn like the father whose son had the unclean spirit that Jesus Turned to and he said, uh, if you can help my son, please do. She's like, hey, what do you mean if you? If you can. All things are possible with God for those who believe. And then the father responds, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Just the smallest bit of faith there for that father. Maybe the size of a mustard seed. So much room to grow. And he turns to the Lord and he says, help my unbelief. Grow, grow my unbelief and turn it to belief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, in that key, the key is faith. We keep on believing. For our race is marked by faith. Our race is marked by trust. Faith isn't mental assent. Don't make that mistake. Satan knows that faith and trust is our lifeline to the Father. He knows that that is our trust, uh, that is our lifeline to our God. And if he can break our faith, if he can break our trust, then he wins. Because the Bible says the righteous will live by faith. So we can assent to the fact that God said something. I can affirm that what God said is true. And we say, that must be faith, but it isn't. The devil can give mental assent to the word of God. In fact, when he turns to Jesus and he tempts him multiple times, he's twisting the word of God, so he knows it very well. But faith is there as we draw near to God and we receive his promises. Faith is forward-looking, trusting that the God who has not seen will do his work as he answers. But when our faith grows cold, we then might turn to works and hope that our works will supplement where our faith has grown cold. But friends, we run a race marked by faith. 
outward behavior and effort isn't going to change your heart. The faith and the trust in the Lord changes it first. He works in that moment. So really the next 40 days is more about faith and trust and exercising that faith and trust than it is in the power of prayer. Seek God's presence where your faith is nurtured. Stay in it in those moments. Wait for him. Wait for his presence. Listen for him through his word and then trust him. And let's see what God can and will do in the life of Coastal Oaks Church. Let's go to the Father.